Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I am your host, Donnie Mae. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. As championships are won, records are broken, and physical limits are pushed, coaches and athletes alike are searching for an edge. Oftentimes, the margin between winning and losing is a 1% difference. In today's high-performing sports culture, you will find a team behind the team that not only supported but sustained an individual's or team's success. The best athletic performance teams today don't necessarily compete against each other. They complete each other. They have really good synergy. The goal for the podcast will be to provide relevant content and real conversations for the various types of practitioners and professionals working with athletes today. It is our aim to help educate, equip, and empower you to win not only on the field, but also within your own performance team. When the team behind the team wins, everyone wins. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mabe, and we are so excited about our next guest that we're having in the studio, Coach Cal Dietz is here in the studio. We also have with us Coach Mike Hansen is going to be my co-host today as we get into the conversation. Cal, say hello to everybody today. Hey there, Coach. How you doing? Good <laughs> to be here with you guys. Uh, thanks for having me. It's really awesome to yeah. be down here in Longhorn Country. Good to have you here, Coach. I'm, I'm sure it's a little warmer than it is in Minnesota. It was 20 below with the wind chill this morning. It, really? Yeah, it was tough, right? Yeah. Uh, five degrees, uh, about five degrees below. Okay, well, it's good to have you. Maybe a little warm weather for, for, uh, for a few days. Hopefully, hopefully you enjoy that. I will. And uh, Coach Mike Hansen, the co-host today. Mike, welcome to the show. Yes, sir. Happy to be here. I appreciate you making time. Uh, before we get into everything, a little bit about the podcast um, for for all the new listeners that are coming on board. This is really a podcast that's directed towards the five buckets or streams of the performance team that surrounds athletes today. Everything's been moving towards this kind of team-based performance model, and so we're talking about strength and conditioning, uh, sports nutrition, athletic training, mental health, and then applied sports science, which is fairly new here in the U.S. So that's the objective. How do those uh, groups work together, communicate the systems, how they, they make the athlete better, take better care of them, provide better services, and ultimately just raise the performance and win more championships. So it's all about the team behind the team. That's the objective. So with that, Coach Hanson, won't you introduce – I know he doesn't really need an introduction – I think so many people know him. Give a little bit about our guest today, and we'll get it going from there. Yeah, the man who probably doesn't need an introduction, um, but for those of those lis- uh, those of you listeners who are unfamiliar with Cal, um, he's the associate director of performance at Minnesota, um, coaching primarily with men and women's hockey. Uh, he's the newly head strength and conditioning coach with USA Women's Hockey. Congratulations, Coach. Thanks. Coach. And he's also the author of Triphasic Training amongst many other manuals. Um, so we extend a big welcome to Cal. Um, Cal, can you kick us off by introducing yourself uh, to our listeners, um, possibly speaking about how you got to where you are today, um, as well as some of your other ventures that you've taken on? Yeah, you know, I, I guess um, people ask me, you know, how I got in the field. Really, it was, I think, through just hard work and, and coaches knew I was interested in training because when, when Coach Mabe here and I started 
the profession was young, right? And I was a mm-hmm. GA um, when I started, but it was a coach that had recruited me, and um, he said, hey, a, a coach at Minnesota called me. This guy was at another school and said, hey, I know a guy that's really interested in strength training at the end of his college career. So I went out to Minnesota, interviewed. I didn't really know a whole lot, let's be honest. I trained, but that was it. And then um, through hard work, I did the GA. Uh, I think when, and then I did the GA, left for a year, and then came back. And honestly, the, there was a number of people interviewing for the job and that had been GAs before. But uh, one of the coaches told me, you know what, during your GA, you were the, and it was, it was a hard situation, right? I mean, I, I went to class every night from 6.30 to 9, was up at 5 in the morning or 4.30, grinding, mm-hmm. you know, every day. And this is the only time I could take classes, basically. So you were the only one that didn't complain. And I think that maybe that's maybe why they hired me 20 years ago when I went back for the interview. You kept asking for more. <laughs> right? The only one that didn't complain about the situation, the money, the whole deal. I just was like, ah, it's, it, nothing we could do about it, so let's just keep rolling, right? So I learned to... You know, eat those those sandwiches that didn't taste great. You know, those crap sandwiches, right? And it's really, yes. you know, some taste worse than others. But even my job, you know, every job has that. Whether you love your job or not, there's always those things you don't want to do, right? So yeah, The meal replacement shakes were what I went with. Right? When I was yeah. Intern. When I was GA, yeah, it was, uh, they had, uh, I think it was Sestacal, the old people drink at the time. That was the only ready-to-made. Mm-hmm. And I think there was one day I probably ate, I didn't have much money to eat. So I think I lo- I, went, I walked into my GA out of my playing days at like 310, and I ended up at 240. Because it was so bad. Well, I just didn't have that much, you know. Yeah. I lost weight, and uh, I, I could. I remember a few days, most of the time when I was working with football, it was just one meal a day that I had, and I tried yeah. to get some more, but then I lived off. And then how about those, those there were some bars, I think it was the Power Bars. I mean, they're so much better. I lived on those things, and they're terrible. Well, they're so much better now, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, so they do it. Yeah. Right, but the first ones that were hard and chewy. Like rocks oh, and gravel. Coach. We used to call it rocks and gravel yeah. back, back in the. And the I 90s. had to, uh, they were effective, but going in, they hurt your jaw. <laughs> and then really going, I mean, I needed some fiber supplement to help, right? It was, it was a <laughs> tough deal, man. But anyway, so, um, and I loved the profession, and I always had a quest to get better. Uh, I think even just about a month and a half ago, I had a day where I read something. We didn't have much going on. It was a game day. But I got in at 6.30. I read something. And I started down a rabbit hole. And I realized by 5.30 that night, before I had to warm the team up, I hadn't ate anything. Mm-hmm. Because I went down a rabbit hole for about 10 hours. Mm-hmm. And you forgot to drink. I don't even know if I went to the restroom. Mm-hmm. And that that's those are the days that keep me... Like that's what I love about this profession. And the, the beauty of it is it's not something that's just one isolated group. Like these silos you talk of, Coach, nutrition plays a role into everything. Like I'm, nobody really knows the parts of triphasic. I mean, the eccentric phase, I think people can figure it out. But what nutrition do you need to recover from yeah. the eccentric phase of triphasic? It's different, right? Well, yeah, you need some very specific stuff like bone broth and, and the collagen, you know, all that stuff. is That's the ideal time to take all that. The rebuild, yeah. Yeah, right? So um, those are the type of things. And, and I think we're lucky because it is a multidiscipline field, right? So the, the, you take all the things that are variables in this, and I'm sure the research doubles every year now, the amount of information you could read. You probably start reading now and never catch it all. So... You're going, yeah, that's that's the fun part to me mm-hmm. is, the, is that never-ending quest. And what keeps me up is is really at night you're going, hey, 
am I giving these athletes everything I can? I mean, I give them every knowledge I can, but is it really enough? And there's nothing I can do because I only know what I know, right? So my limiter here is I, I know what I know, but that's scary that I'm going to miss something, right? And hopefully I just try to keep winning, right? Yeah. That's why I'm in here too. Yeah, what, what year are you in right now, coach? Of coaching? Yes. Oof, I think I'm in probably 23. Yeah. You're 23, 24. There, yeah, yeah 23. Yeah, it. Yes, it goes by fast, doesn't it? Wow. Well, yeah. especially the grind that we're in, you know, 12, 13, 14, 16-hour days. And uh, then we're like, oh, that, uh, you know, because I've worked factory jobs. At, I worked eight hours when I was in college. It seemed way longer than a 16-hour day of coaching. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Right? So I'm going, wow, it was fun. Um, that was a good day. And if you win, you know, I had a fortunate to to uh, meet with some pretty elite coaches. And one of them asked me, why did you get in the game? And I'm like, well, I'm going to walk into the arena and look over at the other team and say, there's no way you can beat us today. That's a good feeling. Right? Yeah, that's a good feeling. There's just for no sure. way. <laughs> yeah. Confidence. Right? Just say, hey, we've done everything we can. You just can't beat us. Yeah. Do you still feel as competitive today as you did when you entered the field? Do you think? I think I'm more wiser. Uh, I yeah. I mean, there's no doubt because you know I think it actually, just maybe I, looks differently. Yeah, I take the losses a little harder, and I I think, and I got to be aware of this. I don't take the wins as I don't I don't enjoy them as much as I used to. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. You it's, hate to lose more than you love to win. Right. That's the, that's the adage. Right, and I, I think, you know, you win a national title. When I was young, how about this? I think I skipped six White House trips with my teams, right? Mm -hmm. I had six opportunities. I've won 11 national titles at the University of Minnesota and skipped six trips because I had other teams train. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to miss a day to go to the White House. Yeah. And I'm going, what? Why did? And I, and I haven't been, I've never been there. So the next one I win, I'm, I need to go if it's an option, right? Because I, when, yeah, young in your career, you're going, man. Oh, I got more national champ. I mean, I'll just, I'll just figure it out someday. But those are the things you you let go when you're young. No, it's definitely. I, I agree with you. The you gotta, as I've gotten a little older too. I definitely, you gotta be careful. The winning uh, can be, if, especially if you're part of a you're part of an elite program like yourself, yeah. and you got your teams are winning a lot. It can become you can take it for granted. You know, yes. and and, uh, and I think too, just and I'm sure you can speak to this too, Cal. But the pressure I feel like on coaches has increased somewhat, just because of budget and finances, and 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 I don't know that they're giving people the same amount of time to turn a program around that they did maybe 10, 15 years ago. You know, so no, and there's all there is. I feel there's more pressure because with social media, there's more notoriety about the program versus one outlet. Yeah. And maybe that paper really likes the coach, so they give him more time frame, yeah. right? But now, social media and the people that can just make comments and all that, it's its a tough deal, right? And it makes coaching so pressure. It's more pressured, right? Because you're going, man, with that, with that short time frame, and then do, do, do we change our philosophies and... I mean, Coach, I think you got into this business to help people because you felt yeah. you could make an impact, right? And we do. I mean, it, it's well known that coaches may make more of an impact in a young kid's life than than maybe the, some of the educators, not taking anything away from them, or maybe they're, they're, they're religious leaders, right? Mm -hmm. And Or if these kids, and how many kids do you know that didn't have a great home that you made an impact on their lives, right? And for me, that, that, that make an impact on a, 
a young athlete's life has been big because, and I, I guess when I was young, I didn't appreciate it as much or didn't understand the impact I was making. But, but now, Coach, you see a kid. I walked into a hockey arena. He was one of my track athletes. He's on the hockey board. Mm-hmm. He's a big-time businessman in his community. When I saw him and he told me what he was doing and how this kid was making an impact, because all his kids play hockey. They also ran track. Some of, They were old enough now. But he's on the hockey board. He's the president of the association, which is big in Minnesota because these are big organizations, right? Like it's crazy. And he's a business owner, and he and he has a company that employs like fifteen people. You're going. I, I was like, I, I want to say that uh, you know, inside I'm I'm smiling, but but you're like, it's kind of like, oh, it's a good cry, joy inside. Like I'm not going to cry, right? But you're going inside me. I'm going, man, the impact that we make, and I don't know if if. Uh, and that takes time to make impacts, right? And I just don't know with the pressure of coaching nowadays, the little time people have to turn programs around, if if us as coaches are being like feel like we can make that bunch of an impact because there's so much pressure to win. Mm-hmm. That's the hard part. You can get lost. Get it lost can get lost. Sure. And we don't mean to, but it's a it's a, you wake up in the morning, you better hit the ground running with the pressure of coaching. Mm-hmm. Right. Very true. Yeah, that's the hard part, and I don't. I hope that the kids never get lost in that. I hope that I don't. But I've been in the field twenty years plus. I feel that I have some level of respect. There's things that I that a young coach has to do that I don't have to do. You know what I mean? I don't have to sell myself anymore. Really, I just don't. Yeah, you got the notoriety and credibility for right? sure. Yeah, and that that's to me. I, I'm not a very good salesman because I never have been. But you know, when I was young, I did. But now. You know, you write book and people think you're you're okay and whatever. You're, you you just let it ride. Um, I'm always just trying to get better. There's things that I don't have to pay attention to. Good. You know what I mean? Speaking of books, what have, coach? What have you been working on lately? Peaking manual, GPP yeah. manual. What what have you been up to, coach? Give well, us a little insight. Most of my manuals are really like just literally the stuff I'm doing right now, um, and then triphasic two. It's been an ongoing process, but, you know, I get asked a lot, and you're ultimately going, this last stuff I came up with in regards to periodization, and really it's kind of a rate limiter concept where you run a 20-yard dash, and you take a 10 out of that, and it can identify your weakest link, and I had to confirm that it was an optimal method to train, and this last summer we did, and I think... I've held off triphasic two because of that, because I know that this system is the ultimate way to train when I say that, at least what I know now, because when I put the whole system together, it told me that the typical periodization models that strength conditioning has followed for the last 50, 60 years is only optimal for 20% of the athletes that have been trained in them for elite athletes. I think it's pretty typical for a high school kid Mm -hmm. but even your second third year training in high school if you have a sound program that same periodization model is not optimal and what this does is is a way for coaches to to optimize what that kid needs for the next two to three weeks yeah essentially it highlights how fluid periodization really is right right Um, it's not just hey you can start here you're going to progress to this and then you're going to end with this right right and let's say the typical periodization model that even mine um, a kid would wait till week eight or nine to work the low, low, you know, low load in the weight room, high speed stuff. We always did speed work, but I'm talking true speed in the weight room. Well, what if he needed speed week one? Right. Now 
I have kids that walk in the weight room and get speed week one because that's the, that's the weakest link. And then they progress faster. So they're able to push their limits even greater. And that's, yeah. that's what's going to go in triphasic uh, two, right? Is that uh, optimal? Yeah. Well, you see that probably more with, I would say, like an example of like a football player that's really strong. Right. Coming out of college for the combine. And they go, they train more speed at the combine. All of a sudden, they're running quicker. Well, it's because they had a foundation too, but they just trained them. Right. More optimally. Right. Well, that's what he needed, right? But but is that going to make him a better player? Yeah. Does he block better now? Probably, yeah, no, probably not. Yeah. Well, probably then, not, yeah. And then the other thing is the fact that, uh, well, the one thing that we can't account for that guy is that he's got experience, right? So you, like, I see it all the time where, where athletes have left me, went somewhere else, and we came back and they tested. I had one kid that, that had left, came back, because he moved back to Canada, came back and said, oh, I think I'm faster. Well, he was 15 pounds lighter, but three-tenths slower in his 20-yard dash time, electronic, than he was with me. Mm. But he thought he was better. But he's just gotten better at hockey over the years. Even my pros would actually get slower over time. A 35-year-old pro, he's slower than he was when he came out of college with me. But he knows the game better, right? And that's the More experience. Efficient. Yeah. More efficient, knows the game. And hockey's so dynamic where, you know, you, you if you know where that guy's going to be, you can make the plays. Yeah, it comes you down to I mean? the ability to understanding what's about to happen, right? right? And, and, you know, coach, even playing the line, like, hand position, foot position, as time goes on, you learn those things. And and that's the part, you know, it's it's not always physical, but you better be somewhat physical and, and be competent with your skill set or you just can't you're just too slow to play. But you know, this whole thing and this thing about the speed stuff where they go to combine, they get faster, but but then what happens a lot is when you only train speed, this is why training's a process, what what guys will do is they're training their tendons to become more stiff, but they're not training their muscles. And what do they do at the combine? Pull hamstrings. All the time. All the time. Why? Because they haven't trained the muscle. They've made their hamstrings too stiff. I've, I've seen so many guys that pull up during the, the combine stuff, and it's just they're not ready. You know, like, I've been training for 10, 12 weeks. I know. Of, of all speed. Yeah. Which trains the tendons and the light weight. This is why training is a process, because you have to train the muscle then the tendon, in my opinion. So they just needed probably two to three weeks of training the muscle in there somewhere. Yeah. On the flip, do you find power lifters maybe run into more tendon issues? Yes. Well, they're, they're it's because they build the muscle. Right. Yeah. They'll, well, what happens is they'll, they'll tear their pec because they've worked their muscle so much, and they haven't trained the tendon. Right. So they tend to tear that pec muscle. Yeah. Versus the tendon. So, like, somebody that trains plyos will, will strain a muscle, okay, because um, their tendons are stiff. Now, but when they tear that pec, I'm sorry, but it's that tendon that snaps, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So the muscle's super strong, and the tendon breaks. You're exactly right. I, I misspoke at the beginning. But, yeah. So you see the difference. That's why this is a process. Again, you go strength, then speed, and it kind of works itself out. Yeah, so just to, just to come back on that, so you, you talked to us earlier today. Um, we were lucky enough to have you down to speak to our staff, but you now use essentially a zero to a 20-meter um, parameter to test an athlete to see what is their five-dash like, 10-yard dash like, 20-meter. Yep. And from there, you can dictate, hey, this person's lacking in speed or this person's right. lacking in power, strength, whatever it may be. Correct, and it's at... Uh 
performance-made simple website, and it's free. You can just get your timing gates set up. You put a five-yard dash in there. You put a 10. You put a 20. And you can just do the 10 and 20 if you want. But it just so, – so I'll talk people through it. If you're quick at your 10-yard but slower at the second half, it's going to tell you with your body weight, it's going to tell you probably need power training in there. It's going to tell you you need speed. And then if you put the five-yard dash in, five-yard dash correlates with starting strength, and that correlates with strength. isometric. Yeah. So then, yeah, I'm telling you, I got a way that if they run this and they don't need isometric strength, I won't have them do the full triphasic, which I only have them do the eccentric phase because then they don't need the isometric phase. And there are times, too, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to speak for you, that you won't even lift above 80% for the concentric phase because you're essentially doing that almost year-round. Is that Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and but if I get a power reading... So usually once somebody does four weeks of, let's say, eccentric, isometric, yep. they're, they're strong enough. I need to switch to power then. And I'm wasting my time if I spend another two weeks above 80, between 80 and 90% right. load, right? right? And people got to realize that we adapt so fast. And ultimately, I realized if I kept them above 80% too long, my, my world-class sprinters would get slower. Mm. Because you're teaching the nervous system to strain mm -hmm. and not be reactive. You know what I mean? And that's during the track season when they're actually still pretty reactive. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. they, they practice. And that, that's definitely, like you said, getting outside the traditional methods and models of periodization, right. getting away from that. Yeah. And, you know, all, and, and, but, but here's the thing. You can't get away from it. But you got to give four to six weeks. So, so like my professional hockey players, they'll train above 80% four weeks a year, and that's it. Hmm. But they're strong already. They've been in triphasic for how many years? i got some that have been in there 12 years now. So we'll do. And some of them on the testing didn't need any eccentric strength. So now, and then the thought was, well, they're getting older. I don't want to eccentric, because eccentric is the most stressful part. So when you lower the weight down with the eccentric training... It causes a huge immune system response because it tears the tissue apart and the body comes in and rebuilds it. Well, their tissue's been tore apart a lot mm -hmm. over the years and it's pretty strong. They don't have any soft tissue injuries. So it's like, well, I don't need to do eccentrics. I'll just do the ISOs because it gets them strong and that's what we need and then we're good. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, um, I've heard people, um, or at least one of your videos, I think it was released a little over a year ago now. Uh, but you released a video where you talked about bracing your core yeah. and got a lot of feedback, um, some of it positive. Uh, <laughs> certainly, there were people who had their arms in the air. Yeah. Uh, but can you dive into kind of what you talked about in that video about bracing your core versus uh, squeezing your glutes or using your hips? Yeah. I'll let and you take it away. The whole thing is, is that, you know, 20 years ago, these books came out about bracing the core, which the research showed, yeah, it was important to brace your core when you had back dysfunction. But we're talking about a healthy person squeezing their ab or their abs when they do something. And I, how I tested it, um, actually, it started with Mel Siff, the author of Super Training, right? Yeah. I was on his super training groups, and he didn't, he wasn't buying it, and I, it didn't make sense to me. So I was just playing with it. I'd have a pitcher pitch a baseball with their core brace, and it, they threw a lot slower. Like, man, we're talking 7 to 10 miles an hour. And then somebody would run a 40, and they would, like, it's almost impossible to think about. They brace their core. I'm going, they're running slower. So why are we doing it in a gym? 
was my question. And then over time, you know, you can check on force plates, just have them brace their core and stand there with close their eyes and check their sway. And it would get way worse. So I'm like, this is a bad feedback. There's something not right here. And then what happened when uh, the medical, I think people have done retrospectively looked at the, the increase in sports hernias. When people started bracing the core, sports hernias went through the roof. And all that tissue gets really tight. And then somebody goes to run and they're pulling that tissue apart. It gets lengthened, yeah. Yeah, because, but it's shortened all the time because they're bracing their core. And it's just really, a, a, it's not how the body's supposed to function because, in my opinion, the core sets on the hips. So then if the hips are working correctly, the core will brace exactly how much it's supposed to. And when you run, you, and, and people are saying, oh, okay, I got to protect the back. Well, the, if everything's functioning, right? The back will protect itself. I believe you cause more dysfunction by bracing the core than you'll actually create right. stability or health. And if you're getting that tissue bound up in front, you're probably going to run into some back issues. Um, if that relaxed tissue is now strained or, or yep. tensed. There's, yeah. there's no question. You kind of talked to us today as a staff about the glutes being kind of the main driver Right. Could you kind of talk a little bit about that again? So if you're not bracing a core, you talked about firing the glutes. Yeah. So if you if your glutes are working, so whether I go to push my goal right now, I have to fire my glutes to stabilize myself. If I go to grab him and pull him, I have to fire my glutes. Mm-hmm. So whether you're doing flexion or extension, if you you have to find the center of your, your body, which is really in the hips, stabilize them so then you can move whatever you need to do. And the big thing for the glutes is that coach I, I checked it on bench press I'm lying on my back and I squeeze my glutes and I bench and the bar moves faster than if I squeeze my abs I checked it on 100 athletes and everyone was faster so I'm not like a statistician but but 100% seems to be pretty good that right is, yeah that works that would be an A plus <laughs> yeah that would be an A plus <laughs> so my point is then I checked it on every exercise I could do and people just seem to move the weight move more weight move lighter weight faster because we tend to things and it, it just seemed to be the right way to move and it felt more natural right so you're sitting here you're going how is it possible that people got it like did, did they really check any of this all i did was test things that happened and it wasn't it wasn't adding up and i i test a lot of things i've always tested to make sure people get better <laughs> and you're going it just didn't add up that's that was my hard hard yeah. part for me, right? Yeah. Um, so our profession, it just seems like we're always trying to find the next thing, right? Or we're attaching ourselves to to the newest technology or the latest system, whatever it may be. Um, but what are some things um, that are maybe um, swept over or underutilized? Whether it's it's training philosophies, whether it's it's building buy-in, whether it's anything like that. Do you see anything in our field that kind of gets missed when everyone's trying to reach for these newer and better things? Yeah, I mean, again, I just go back to analyzing it. What can you analyze it with? Is it testable? Um, I, I like heart rate variability for a lot of things, you know what I mean? And when I say this, as a biofeedback tool. So if you think a supplement works and it makes your heart rate, and you take it and 40 minutes later your heart rate variability has gotten a lot worse probably goes in a good supplement your body doesn't like it so these feedback tools i think are ways and and i've had i've had certain supplements let's say like a ribose 
and athletes have taken it, and I saw no response with mm-hmm. the heart rate variable, but others took it, and there was a really good response. So they needed it. The other one didn't. It's not like everything's 100% for everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, cookie cutter, yeah. Right. And then just, just if you don't have anything but a stopwatch to test stuff, use a stopwatch, right? Yeah, and, we talked about that with uh, Dan Fichter with autoregulation yeah. on how it might have been D.B. Hammer who however many years ago, is, he didn't have all the newest technologies. He, all he had was a stopwatch. Uh, and he could figure out autoregulation. Right. So, Yeah, I mean, autoregulation, you know, and, I mean, geez, that, my first exposure was my track coach and Phil Lundin. And we, we had a couple uh, pretty elite 400-meter runners, and I was watching practice, and he's doing flying 20s. And he, they ran through, and you're going, well, t- times were unbelievable. And I'm like, well, how many are you going to do? He's like, till they slow down. <laughs> right? Yeah. That was it. I'm like, Fatigue. That's awesome. That's all, that's all a regulation right yeah. there. I mean, track coach has been doing it for a long time. Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah, still all you need is a stopwatch. And they only use a stopwatch, right? So did who invented it? I don't know. Right. I, think, I think it came from the Soviet Union, to be honest with you. But, right. you know, they just used whatever. But you're going... Yeah, it's nothing special, but I think the Germans probably did a lot better job of because uh, of the engineering thinking mindset that they have. You know what I mean? They're really good at that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to stick with our field and common discussions or debates. Um, but we had a post that was maybe a few months ago. Um, it was just a post about squat depth, right? Yeah. Threw it out oh, there. I like, this to- I like this topic. And again, yeah. it, it got a lot of feedback. Um, some people applaud. Other people... You know, threw up different fingers. And so I just want to know your take on squat depth. Um, again, whether it be a split squat or a back squat, yeah. whatever it may be, um, and its impact on performance. Well, the the problem is, is that, okay, first of all, I'll make the statement. I've never seen a typical powerlifting squat. I've never seen one athlete in that position in the field. Okay? Yeah, that's true. I've been that's looking, true. right? I've been waiting for 20 years, never seen it. So then when you look at the way I squat is I, I call it a sports squat where I basically squat my hips go straight down. Now my my if you actually look, then my shins would be parallel to my torso. And that's Carmelo Bosco's research mm-hmm. that he activated the glutes with that type of angles. So your shins and your torso are at, if you drew a line on the photograph, they're at the same at the, the squat. But then you don't necessarily, you can't squat that deep because of that position. Right. Right? But you're, you can get actually below a 90 degrees. At your knee. At your yeah. knee. Right? So, but, but and people want to say, oh, you got to get parallel. Well, but the problem is, again, if, if you squat like that, that's not the way the body's functioning. I've had it make my sprinter slower, right? Because you're getting that position, you got a strain coming out of it. It's not the way anyone moves. So and I'm saying you can't squat like that because people have. And look, if I'm, if I'm saying something different, it's only because I think I'm doing something that's more optimal. Because squatting can get, can get people faster. Right. It has. Right. I'm, not, I'm just saying the most specific thing is to squat with that sports back squat right. position with your shins and your torso parallel. And I didn't make that up. Like, Carmelo Bosco found, and he was a true scientist. He he used real EMGs. Um, I have them. I have them at my weight room. I have the shorts. Now I have real EMGs. The Atho shorts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can see all this, right? So you're going, it, it, and I'm going, I'm not going to do things that, are sport, that aren't sport specific 
because those are exactly what I need to get. That's the, exactly what I need to do to make my athletes better and to get some better results, right? So I know there's these purists out there and, and like Olympic weightlifting yeah. and everything, yeah. right? And and they, they try to drive these trends because they want their stuff to be the most optimal, but it's not. Like I, I tell people, look, when people come back and I test them if they do a program like that, there's no way because people look, well, what do you test? I'm, I'm testing vertical drop. Well, my squat looks more like a vertical jump than a deep, super deep back squat. Where you're driving your hips back. And, right. Yeah, and yeah. going deep and you're coming out slow and then you'll, you, you yeah. know, where mine, I drop my hips straight down, my knees go in front of my toes. But that's actually how your foot and chins function in sports. Yeah, you talked about that a couple of years ago. And I remember as you were talking, it might have been a podcast or YouTube. I remember as you were talking, I YouTubed. Um, or a Google imaged uh, ho- like hockey player, professional hockey player, and the first image was a it was a player uh, essentially skating with his knee past the toe of his boot. At least six inches and in so, some of these right. people, right? And if you don't have a strong foot to support that arch when that knee goes forward, it's going to collapse. It's yeah. going to the arch is yeah. going to collapse, and then the knee will come back, and he can't skate as high. Right. So so the whole thing here is that they keep that foot function. And they squat, they push that knee in front of their toe. And people say, what about knee pain? I'm like, there's more force on the knee when you get into that deep squat than by what I call a sports back squat, where you're dropping your hips, I wouldn't say straight down, but just a little bit back, right? Because of the angles of... of right. And if your thigh bone's longer, then it's a different... Right, just naturally yeah. how yeah. the femur's going right. to sit down. Yeah. But your torso and your shins are at the same angle, and you squat down. And you go a little bit below where they play at. Because I've never seen, again, and even the white stance. I know there's people uh, that would argue the white stance, right? They go, okay, well, yeah, but they, they got a bunch of pros in these positions where they had white stance. And they say, oh, see, these guys function in white stance. Yeah, but but look, they take a step. After they're in a white stance, they got pictures of them, but they step to get in a good position right. to then sprint. They never come out of that white stance hmm. like they should, right? So... Let's that hip needs to push that f- straight down to the ankle, and really, then the ankle helps dictate which way you can go, right? Right, because that's but your hips and knee drive down to the foot, yeah. But I think it comes back to like you're saying, um, what's going to make them better, you know, as far as so I know I work with a, a lot of tall athletes, and the traditional squat, I mean, tears their knees, yeah, up. it's going to be bad, so you've got to, you've got to. Think differently when you when you start looking at different ways to squat and patterns and whatnot that's going to help them be, uh, improve performance. So, coach, and you can't shove a, a that scrum that round peg into that square mm-hmm. hole, right? You're just going, and and it's is it where am I going to get the most benefit out of this for this athlete to prevent injury and then performance? And a deep squat on a girl that's six foot three with a long thigh bone is crazy, in my opinion, absolutely yeah. crazy. You can watch it, yep. you know, when, when let's say she's going to, you know, and I tell people, I got girls that, that may not back squat 200 pounds because we don't work on it, but they'll do a single leg safety bar squat at 350. Well, the purists will be like, whoa, back squat's a great lift. Well, yeah, but I can get a greater hormonal response. I can get greater strength adaptations. My girls have huge bone density. Uh, the high, some of the highest they've ever and that's seen. that's way more effective and, and got a bigger st- return yep. than having a high number on a back squat. Back squat. Yeah. yeah. And you can still hit those angles. You can still hit you can still those hit angles. the hip, shin angles, yep. 
Yeah. And those, you know, those angles, they're, that's more specific than the back squat, double leg. I never, when do you ever see him in that position? I just don't, right? And, uh, you know, and, and coaches that come to my gym, I've literally had them walk in. They want to see, watching the workout, our knees are in front of our toes. We squat with our heels off floating heel with a single leg squat. Why? I realized that that's how humans run. So I started doing all my hip extension stuff, minus a back squat. I mean, I don't back squat on my toes because it's too hard bilateral, but all single leg Mm -hmm. work was done on the balls of your feet with just the heel right off the ground, right? And it strengthens your foot, which is important. And I tell people, and you guys heard me say this, you're going, the only animal in the world I used to think that ran on their toes was an elephant or their heels was an elephant. But then an elephant person told me that <laughs> the fat pad is actually hitting the ground elephants do run on their toes also Wait, that's pretty cool where right? do you where do you run into an elephant expert at a, at a <laughs> clinic right like well what it was was you know you post something and you say it on the so, someone's got to say something and about somebody it. will email me and i'll call them i'll be like what they're like yeah it's just the fat pad i'm like all right how do you know well, I I'm, a, I'm at a zoo and <laughs> somebody said me you said i love when people call yeah. correct right email yeah, yeah that's yeah. always that's well, always funny right it's the same thing with bracing the core and the you know i got some hate mail from a physio out of italy and he's like i've been doing this 30 years and you're wrong and i'm like have you tested it and he's like no i don't need to and i'm like just test you it for me to, yeah and then two weeks went by and i emailed him and said hey did you test it I still haven't heard back again, you know, but anyway, it's, yeah. So you come into my gym in 208, I started jumping. So when we land, I don't try to tell my athletes, never let their heels hit the ground. And if they do, it's fine. Right. But you're going, I'm on my toes the whole time and we're jumping straight up and down and I'm going, and people go, that's not the way that some organizations tell me to to do my jumps. I'm like, I know. But you watch the uh, bring up YouTube of a rebound in the NBA. Bring up a YouTube of of anybody catching a right. bat. No one's jumping the way some people coach it in these organizations. And I'm not saying it's bad. It, it's a good for a learning tool. But I'm talking about sports specific stuff. So yeah, people come to my weight room. And they go, oh, they jump with their knees in front of. They're on their toes. I'm like, yeah, but that that's how they run. <laughs> like that's just that's just it. That's a great segue into another debate that our field gets into um, because you brought up your safety bar split squats. um, And that's, you know, is unilateral training better? Is bilateral training better? I've seen it um, on Twitter, Instagram. This this is a good Um, And so I think they both have their merits depending on your circumstances. Um, But what are your thoughts on how unilateral training and bilateral training um, affect performance and the nervous system? Well, the bilateral... I've began to realize, um, and that's through Dan Fichter, uh, brought it to my attention that it, it's not a great feedback loop for the brain. Um, we develop through crawling and moving and cross crawl patterns, right? So you, I, I literally have checked every position that I train in and by having a split stance, okay, doing something with a split stance, I got a great feedback. When I say that, like put them on the balance plate, um, and I don't do a lot of this balance testing. A friend of mine, a coach out of Europe, does it. He'll do the exercise. Boom. He has blindfolds on so their their eyes don't come yeah. into the balance. The whole deal. Puts them on, and the balance is thirty percent worse with a bilateral movement than a unilateral movement in the exercise. So the big thing is, is just we're training what the body likes. The feedback loop is is more beneficial. Uh, it's not a negative, I should say, and. I like the safety bar squat because then 
I can load a bunch of weight onto that person and get because I a love better, heavy yeah. loads, right? That, that's why we that's why we train heavy because we can get testosterone and hormone releases and all these releases. And I talked about marathon runner trains a lot, but they don't look like your shot putters or your linemen, no. why? Because mm-hmm. they don't get the hormonal re- response, the testosterone. You know, so then we're sitting here. We're going. We want to load people to get bone density adaptation, tissue adaptations, tendon adaptations, and then once we load them, um, then you focus more on sport specific stuff. So you can do both. Even in triphasic, I talked about. Yeah, I did back squat eccentrically, but once I got out of the triphasic, I went to sports back squat, where it was more specific to the movements they were doing in the basketball arena, in the hockey arena, the whole thing, right? Right. And if you have a specific tissue, you may want to train uh, a bilateral movement. I think it's completely fine. But to be the most specific, you better get to the unilateral, right? And I don't do uh, the rear foot elevated with the heavy loads. I think the rear foot elevated is fine. I just won't do it yeah. with heavy, heavy loads because actually I found the SI. Rotates the pelvis. Yeah, yeah, rotates the pelvis. So it was literally the first day I did the super maximal loading was a Monday. Then Tuesday, the Kairos came in and said, hey, everybody's off. I'm like, well, we better figure this one out, right? Because there was no pain yet, but every hip was off. So then I just put the foot on the ground and they were better. So um, that's that's one of those learning experiences. No, yeah, I've definitely uh, played around with the single leg, the rear foot elevated. It definitely will put some torque in the SI joint, yeah. especially if you're bound up a little bit in the front. Yeah, you got to be careful. Yeah. If you utilize that exercise, kind of how far out their foot is and how yes. far out you're, you're pushing that pelvis. Yeah, and under heavy load is when I found right. a majority with of the With the problem. barbell on the back, yeah. Or the safety bar split squat was 120% load. With the front, yeah. Yeah, I think it was 50 yeah. 60% load and some bands. I think you're fine, to be honest with you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I just think when you get over the heavy loads, then that, that, that becomes an issue, for sure. Um, yeah, but uh, it's... So, um, I, I honestly, the unilateral... It's just a better feedback, and I'm, I'm seeing, because the problem is, is that back squat compensation pattern, in my opinion, you see things that, that transpire over time, long term, that, that's not always healthy for the individual, whether it's bigger quads. From doing the bilateral. Yeah, yeah, doing the bilateral, right? So I just seem to get, and, and look, people think, you know, these, these big-time athletes, they got to be perfect, and they're not. They're this really the best compensators sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And they can hide and disguise things, and they function at a high level even though that there's, there's something not wrong. And I tell people, look, this person doesn't have the right glute pattern, but he just ran a, an elite world-class time. I'm like, that's fine, but he just doesn't. Something's going to break eventually. Coach, what about uh, talking about unilateral? You, you made me think lower body. You were talking lower body. What about upper body? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, the bench press isn't a great feedback, but what better movement do you have than to load, to load the yeah. upper body? So then, you know, by getting up and marching or, 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 or you know, just, just doing the other stuff unilateral, mm-hmm. you get a good feedback, right? So, again, it's about adaptation for me, and it's the hormonal response. And how do, how do I get big triceps? Close grip bench is the best way. I think a two, three board close grip bench, but you got to go heavy. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. there's just no other way of getting big, strong triceps. And especially if you're a shot putter, you need to make somebody strong. Well, even if you're a basketball player, I remember one year the coaches wanted a big bench press. And, and I, I posted this on my YouTube is where we'd bench on Monday, 
and then we do a close grip on Tuesday, close grip board for the basketball guys. And I think um, Steve Felty out, out of uh, at Miami, right, when he did that, he saw like 40 to 60 pound increase. And he did then on, Tuesday, on Thursday, he'd bench again and close mm-hmm. grip on Fridays yeah. again. And he just saw and these guys' weak links were really their triceps. Oh, wow. Right? So he just benched four days a week. First one was bench, second one was close grip. Repeat that Thursday and Friday. And he saw a huge adaptation just by splitting those up. You know what I mean? So you still have to load no matter what, right? It's just it's just hard. So I, I hear your load. I got a little side question. My own curiosity. Uh, BFR training. Yeah. The uh, occlusion training. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Have you experimented with some of that? Um, what have you seen with some? I know I've... I've toyed around with it a little bit and definitely yeah. I do like it look at these arms I use them <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be a far today yeah, yeah. yeah well I mean people ask me what do you train today coach I'm like arm day <laughs> of course <laughs> right because that's all that matters um, no I have a set I have a set with my son um, I'll use it in different ways obviously I'll do it with curls of course yeah. it's really nice right yeah. uh, nice feel. it's the most important yeah right you ever, do you ever use them for like oxygen deprivation during your GPP block yeah we yeah. do um, one of the things I'll do is uh, Victor Selenioff the Russian that uh, some of his stuff but he did, he talked about the hyper the slow repeated effort where so I, I'll use them with my son I'll put the cuffs on him he gets on the stepper and I hook bands to the ground and he'll do like on level four and he'll step two at a time and he's doing a huge step with him on his legs with him on his oh, legs man. and bands on his body yeah hook pulling down to the ground and he'll do that for a set of 10 a 10 minute set coach when cal gave me the the fyi on that that will burn you that, you go you i've seen you you go three to five minutes a few i haven't sets seen that there's a visual that just sounds yep. intense yeah, yeah. and you, you go nice and slow but it it's legit because you're recruiting those fast twitch fibers and i don't know how much of a difference it made in my son but we do it still all the time and he's pretty fast right now mm. but his mom was an olympic gold medalist right and um he's he's you know he's really fast and you're going people ask me what i do and i'm like well it's really hard but yeah like to tell you everything that i've done with him but it's fun you know um even just playing the football when we were young i'd I'd throw a football and when i threw it he'd run a pattern and i'd throw it too far so we had to run (laughs) super hard and he'd come back and he'd grab the football and he'd yell at me and tell me how bad of a quarterback I was. And we'd play left-handed catch mm. for like two minutes until he recovered. And then we'd do, we'd do like six to eight of those. And then we could go do whatever we want. But I did high-quality work. Even when he was six, eight, ten years old, we did just high-quality work. That's the key. You can't, you can't get fast if you're not running fast, right? We know this. Yeah. And that's what we did. We just had fun. You know, and he, I, I took a lot of heat from being a bad quarterback, but I threw that ball too far, so he had to really run fast. It was, It'll pay dividends later yeah, in maybe, his life. Yeah, yeah. hopefully he gets It'll a scholarship, return, yeah, yeah. right? He'll get a scholarship maybe sometime. The wise quarterback, not the bad quarterback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. I know. You made me think when you're talking about the high loads that we I just recalled an athlete we had that she couldn't train. Uh, Mike, going back to what you were saying about the squat depth, she couldn't train in those low ranges, and so, but load was something that definitely helped keep her, uh, you know, we couldn't go as low with a, like a trap bar deadlift or something like that, but she got, was able to get stronger and kept, kept her healthier and was able to put some mass on. So it's, you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's got so much application. Yeah. I mean, anytime I think you get people saying, no, everyone needs to be parallel. 
I mean, when you speak in absolutes or you put everyone in the same silo, um, I think it's just intuition that we know that humans are too complex to just, you know, file everyone in the same file. Yeah. So it's kind of... It's just, it's just a, it's an ego thing. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know what, here's the thing too, what you hear now is you hear these these coaches, like a powerlifting coach or some coach say, hey, I got, I got athletes that squat a thousand pounds. And I'm like, you got, you got, or I got like 10 people in my gym squat 800. I'm like, yeah, look at them walk. They, they're terrible. I got a whole team of women that can't squat 200 pounds. It'll smoke them in a 20 yard dash, physically beat them in a 20 yard dash. Women that run 2.8, you know what I mean? 20 yard dashes. And I know if you squat eight, 900 pounds and can barely walk, you're not running a 2.8, 20 yard dash. And then my men, they're way faster right and they're just athletes compared to what you are what what made you an eight nine hundred pound squatter is exactly what i don't want coach i got a true story i got to share with with you i, don't, I love I've your story told it but so i was when i was playing at georgia to play d-line as you know i was kind of what you're talking about just kept chasing the number on squat and bench and was at the time this is back in the 90s it's definitely strong back in that that, that era oh, 500 pound bencher for sure right? yeah for sure yeah and then squatting you know close up to 700 yeah. and we had this little uh my red shirt sophomore year, so it was really i was junior i was 20 years old we had this little homemade little wooden uh with the pad on it little pad uh, uh sled we had to punch pre-practice and it was just one of them and we get in the line and we'd punch it I would come out, I was benching 500 at the time, and I'd punch this thing. I, I couldn't get it up. There was a guy from Kansas, um, name was Mike Steele, did not bench very much. He could smack this thing around, and coach would go off on me. I'm like, how are you this strong, and you can't, this does not make, and it just didn't, I would get so far, I didn't have an answer. Yeah. And so that, that summer, I, I started training differently, uh, that's where I met Doc Crease and started doing more speed strength training. Yes. My actual squat and bench numbers dropped significantly. And when I got back, it's probably two or three months later from training that I could hit that pad and it was no problem. I could smack yeah. it around. Smack you know. it around. Yeah, I could get it. Basically, I had to get it up in the air fast and I could get it. It was no problem. My 40 got a lot quicker. And I was actually, I learned that was a, like I wasn't a strength coach at the time. But that's when my eyes were open that like I was actually detraining my body because I'm chasing numbers or whatever. And, right. Oh, okay, you get nice. really good at, at applying force over that long mm-hmm. period of time. But when it came down to do what your sport actually requires, that's where. And I think uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan. I don't know if you guys watch Star Wars. or You, you ever watch it? Yeah. So one of my favorite quotes is uh, that only Siths think in absolutes, you know, and I think. That I mean, I know that's a movie quote, but I think that's got a lot of application, Mike, what you're saying, Cal, that there's just, you, you can't look through one lens and have what this is the only way, you know, the, like you call the purest, the only way we can do it. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's a little ego. Everyone wants to be the guy, right? Mm-hmm. And I just want my athletes to win. You know, it's, uh, that ego can kill a lot of things and can, can close your views to the rest of the world. Because everybody, like, you can learn from anybody, even even Olympic lifts. I don't do Olympic lifts. I don't believe I can get better results with other stuff. But I would. I drove to Iowa to listen to the, the father of Chinese weightlifting, and I got one thing out of him where he, he saw the world. He went to the Russians. He went to the Bulgarians. The Russians did multiple lifts. The Bulgarians basically did five. And he's like, 
and he used this example. He had a world champion, hurt the wrist, and broke, I think broke it, had to recover, only did a bunch of assisted lifts until six weeks out when he was, or four weeks out, cleared to do the lift, the full lifts, came in and set a new world record. And then they knew that doing assistance, like, helped with the weak links, mm. right? Yeah. So then to me, I was like, okay, this is why I need to have variety of lifts in my program on different days because, one, you train the tissues differently, okay, from doing a bench. People say, oh, it works a pec, but dumbbell bench does too. Yes, but they both train different, like, slings or different parts of that tissue differently. So that's why, to me, I need you need to do the assisted lifts for sure. And I'm, I just wasn't going to bank on one lift covering everything. And there's limitations to Olympic lifts. And I love watching them. I love, you know, I love people. I love to watch people do them. It's awesome. Yeah, I mean, they can. Some athletes get good return on it, and there's some I've seen that just it is the worst thing you could do with them. Well, I tell I tell people this, Coach. I had one world class thrower. He, um, well. I think he was, he didn't get to 200 kilos or 440 clean, but he was he was like over 400. And then I had another guy that cleaned 440, and I think he walked in doing 320. So uh, he went from like 320 clean to 440 over his years with me, and I think he increased his throwing distance four and a half five feet on the yeah. job play. <laughs> it had nothing to do with it, right? It had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And you're thinking 440 is a lot. I mean that's yeah. a full clean. I mean, he pulled it, dropped underneath it, caught it. That is a huge clean, yeah, right? For a college athlete. For a college athlete, that's that's not your business, right? And and I ha- I've had like three of those over the years. Only one was a really good shot putter. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's crazy. They had no correlation with with performance. Well, I think I think in a field where it's literally titled strength and conditioning, we can get lost in in the performance realm of. You know, we get we get caught up in the strength numbers, right? Yeah. If the number goes up, our performance must go up. And we talked on the field, you know, a few hours ago. It's like, why are we doing certain things? Are we evaluating it? Are we deciding, did this work? Did it not work? And, you know, in the past, maybe sometimes your back squat goes up. But as we're now hearing, like, your performance doesn't always correlate with that. It doesn't, yeah. And so you have to find ways, which Cal is just what kind of what makes you unique of evaluating what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Is this is this helping my performance or is it hurting it? Can I ask you a question, Coach? I know this is your podcast, but like Yeah. I, when I was young I tested more, but now if I see a new exercise and not the one I brought I, I, I made up, but if I see one, I, I know it's gonna work. I don't even have to test stuff anymore. Because I got enough experience in my field. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Do you see, you feel that now that you see something? Yeah, I think you know. I think uh, kind of what you're saying as you get older and you, you get more experience, the 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 kind of coach's eye that you evaluate is yes. different. You know, of what you what you know what they really need, maybe, and right. and maybe that exercise you see something like that was something you need to add that's going to make a big difference. So you don't need to necessarily test for something you know so yeah and that's the fun part because I, I keep learning and looking for new things right um people ask me how i make how i make some of this stuff up and some of the crazy stuff that i come up with i think that it works and i usually test it and find out but i i ask questions of of everything that i do i look at it so i i start asking questions which create problems that i didn't know i had if you ask enough questions you'll find problems that i didn't know i had and then all I do is try to fix them and make solutions for them. 
Yeah, and I think what you just said too, you've gotta you've gotta have like you've gotta have enough humility to be open minded and be curious. If you wanna be innovative, you know, and you gotta have that curious mind, I think, you know, always trying to find a better way to improve it and make it better, you know. One hundred percent. And that's the thing, is if you're willing to accept that everything you know might be wrong, which is really hard. If you can, well, if you've done it a certain way, yeah, you know, for a, a, quite a while, right? And I, I, it was years ago. I began to realize, like, yeah, I'm probably wrong, and everything I've done at one time or another is I, I, maybe it's not wrong. It's just not optimal, and I'm trying to do optimal things all the time. So, if you can be humble enough to accept that, and then as a coach, keep looking. Because to me, if I stop looking, then I've let my athletes down, right? I've let my athletes down. I mean, we yeah, and we still live in a day and age where a lot of the myths of what we do still exist. For instance, you know, with working with females, you work with female athletes, but lifting weights is going to make them too big and bulky where they can't perform. Right. And I'm like, we're still in that, we're still having that topical debate of, that you know, lifting weights is going to make them where they can't they can't move and perform. I, I know. I mean, it's and it's amazing what weights do for women and their yeah. confidence. I, it's like the other day, Mike. You've probably seen this where the other day, and you know what I'm talking about. I had five of my female uh, women's ice hockey players uh, walk in the weight room. And I think they're. I mean, the heaviest one was about 182, but she's she's about 17 on the DEXA, which is really That's amazing. Mean. Yeah. And then the lightest one was probably 150, and there were five of them that were probably from 5'7", five, 5'8", five, to 5'11". To when they walked in the room, they owned it. It was the gym, and when all five of them walked in, you're like, oh, there's something going Balls. down here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love it. And the, I, I mean, a few of them will be on the Olympic team, but just the attitudes and the, the way they – you see them walking down the street, and the people turn their heads – I mean, and this is Minnesota when they got snow. So it's not their beauty. It's their sheer <laughs> presence. You know what I mean? I mean, so I've worked with some females. I mean, they just love to train. They're intense. Right? And uh, they are such a, they're just a joy to work with. You know? I know. And you're going, man, this person, it doesn't matter what they do. They're going to be successful. Whether they're, if they're a mom, they're going to be a great, they're going to be a great parent. Mm-hmm. They're going to be a great whatever. It's just, right? It's awesome. I mean, I really enjoy training the women. You go in that, into that weight room in Mariucci, and these women come in, uh, again, how they carry themselves, and they're ready to work. And so they go up to a safety bar, four plates each side, and you're like, there's no way, you know, no way in heck they're going to finish, move it, right? And they're doing four sets, clusters, just knocking it out, just throwing on 25s, Strong. 45s. Yeah, it's crazy. But, Coach, that goes to the culture, the, the app, our actual program. Mm-hmm. You know, that starts at the head coaches. And it's kudos to them. Yeah, what are some things that you've done to build some buy-in or, or add to buy-in in your teams? Um, most of it was done years ago, you know what I mean? I, honestly, now it's a kid gets on, oh, I, this strength coach at Minnesota, he's on his recruiting visit, I meet him, and 36,000 followers, he must be good. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? That, help, that, that helps, helps a little right? bit there. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, and I, I don't know. Um, I probably, honestly, I, I probably still fail. I probably don't explain things enough. I find that even though if I explain it, not everybody gets it, and it's good that I do uh, buy-in. Um, 
I mean, I have a lot of championships, so this is what we do. I actually found with, like, let's say, for example, my GPP phase, Mike, it's about building a base foundation for fitness, but it also can burn fat if you do it optimally and, and you fasted during the, the that workout, right? It's the only time of the year I want you to fast is during your base building. Why? Because it activates a fat burning enzyme. That's all the girls needed to hear, and they were all in. All the way in, in right? Finding what and drives were, the athlete. I mean, and, and people walk in, their mouths taped shut to teach nasal breathing, and, and you know, and, and work on um, the utilizing CO two, right? You, you're going, you're going, holy buckets! They are all in. But it, I gave them all this stuff, and they're just kind of listen. Okay, coach. And I said, and this enzyme here that activates burns fat. They're like. Let's just start this workout yeah, right now, coach. Yeah, it was crazy, right? It was it's so. I don't know. There's there's always these triggers, yeah. right? That's it. That made that made me think of a story when I was interning with Cal, um, and I don't know if you still do this, um, and this may come, this may uh, be along the lines of building leadership. But so Cal has he, his weight rooms right underneath the the arena stairs at the hockey arena there, and so they'll go up, they'll do their warm up around the arena, um, and during their off season GPP phase. He'll have them run stairs depending on what they're doing, um, may dictate what they're doing on the stairs. But when they finish that, they're usually pretty gassed. But what Cal does is while they're going through running these stairs, Mm -hmm. he tells us interns and he was like, I want you to go down to the weight room and I want you to flip everything upside down, throw things around, whatever. And so, you know, you kind of double check, like, like, what do you mean? He's like, no, like flip benches, just so we go down to the weight room. We throw plyo boxes around. We put kettlebells in the other side of the weight room. He has two rooms down there, at least he used to. You put certain equipment in different rooms, come back upstairs, and he has the team gathered. And he says, essentially, you know, A and B, you guys can talk. No one else is allowed to say a word. He says, you have two minutes to set up your aerobic conditioning circuit that these kids know by at this point. Uh, he says, if you don't do it in the two minutes, we're going to run more stairs and we're going to start over. And so you see these guys paying attention and maybe one person or two people are talking, trying to dictate traffic. And uh, it was just a crazy story and scene to see them go down there and everyone is silent, but doing whatever they can to set up a circuit, you know, getting physio balls put back into place, et cetera. Yeah. And some of the, the mistakes were made, like the kids that could talk would start doing stuff and then people were screwing stuff up. But nobody can tell them that they're screwing stuff up because the guy, so that guy had to remove himself from actually doing a majority of the work when he should be observing and, and telling people, hey, those go over here. You know what I mean? So, it, problem solved. And uh, under pressure. And uh, the hard part is if, yeah. let's say you, you don't have a coach that, that is not going to follow up. So let's say that some of the disconnects in teams. And, and so people understand I've, I've coached over 200 seasons as a coach and I've seen some world class coaches administer things and i've seen coaches that didn't have a chance to recruit great players but what happened was they developed some world-class athletes right but you're going i can do all this stuff in the off season but if it's not kept up or let's say my leadership stuff or my things for this was is this part and then it's completely different when the coaches get them it really doesn't matter it's not you know what i mean it's not gonna because the culture will be different not that theirs is bad it's just I have to disconnect. mimic what the head coach is doing. Yeah, you know? they set the tone. Yeah. They do, and I, you know, and and Mike, that that was a great that's a great tool. But I was hoping to teach that team to to communicate under pressure. And then when they failed and they didn't get it, we brought them in and said, "Where'd you fail?" 
And I remember I had one team start, and they, 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 they set that circuit up with three minutes, 40 seconds. And then literally two weeks later, by, by doing that, they, went, they got it down to like a minute 55. That's how much they improved from day one. And I, ma- I made some things harder. They were still able to communicate. It's, you know, and you hope that under pressure... And fatigued. And fatigued, right? That um, I have I have a buddy in, in obviously some various, some various groups, but I've met a lot of special operations. I have wrote a tactical manual for special operations, and I've been exposed to those guys. And, and some of it's like, why do others get through and, other, and some don't? And, and the guy was like, oh, well, I would make decision after decision in, this, in these situations that was right. And then I could recall the situation. Mm. What happened eight decisions ago? Why did you do this? And boom, he could recall it. And and under stress, people, you can see where people start to lose that decision-making skill or the processing in the the right way. You know, um, that's that's the real hard part of it. So I'm curious too. You uh, not that we would ever have any demanding and hard coaches to work with, but <laughs> if there were some out there. <laughs> Um, Coach, how have you, you know, you've definitely been a part of some championship teams. Um, Those coaches usually are very demanding and they have high level expectations. What, I mean, what have you done over the years to kind of help build those relationships with your coach and kind of manage up, so to speak? Yeah. um, In the beginning, I was pretty good coach, even though I was young, that the field was so young. They were just happy to have a strength coach, it seemed like. And then I had some success, a lot of success early in my career, and then new coaches would come in, and and that's when I had to learn to, like, communicate. And and, uh, I would, you know what I found is uh, if a coach is wanting to do something that's, they wouldn't always communicate with me what their goal was. So I, I try to find that. And a coach wanted to really just build a base, but he wanted to kill him. And it wasn't really good training. And I'm like, okay, so you're just trying to build a base. He's like, yeah. And then I'm like, okay. And then, cause I heard he did this for like 10, 12 weeks of the semester. And I'm going, Oh, I mean, this is terrible. Long, right. Yeah. And then I go, and then there, and I'm like, I assume then there's going to be a point where we switch over to do high quality training to get them faster and do things like, to make them better and he's like oh yeah yeah we'll do that he's like how about three to four weeks i'm like yeah i usually find i don't get much effect after programs like this after three and he's like really i'm like yeah they just didn't keep improving he's like well then three weeks is what we'll do so i backed him down from like 12 to three of of putting through a high pace high volume Mm. you know what i mean and i'm like okay some i don't want to crush their egos but it was one of those deals where I'm like, okay, you're doing it for this. I understand. And then at some point, you're going to switch over, right? And you always leave them that out. Like, yeah, we're going to switch over. You know what I mean? And again, though, with testing, um, like I had a thrower's coach that was really difficult when he came in. And we had all these numbers and I had all my maxes. And, I mean, we're doing clusters and we're getting strong. I mean, I had... Multiple kids bench 440, right? Um, That's moving weight, yeah. Yeah. And you're going, okay. And then they do these high volume program and the kids max, and we max out six weeks later, eight, and he's down to 390. And I'm going, yeah, it's your program. And then the kids had an uproar and he's just like, he let it go, but it's just difficult, right? 
Um, you got to fight those battles, though. You got to, I mean, sometimes you got to get through it, right? You have to get through it. You have to, if they're the coach, I mean, we're, we're, we're behind, the, we're the team behind the team, as you say, coach. And sometimes you got to eat those crap sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> right? That's my favorite line. Yeah. Hopefully there's an olive on it every once in yeah, a while, a little something. mayo, yeah. right? <laughs> and uh, it's not a double-layered one. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, those are tough conversations to have, certainly, when you have coaches who, who may have a high ego um, or be type A personality. Right. Just, but you owe it to the kids, kind of like you said. Like, you have to have those tough conversations. Well, I, I found if I never backed them into a corner and I gave them an out of a way, hey, this is how we're going to eventually change it and where we're going to get to, then we are like, okay, yeah, well, okay, we'll deal with it for three weeks so that the rest of the 30 weeks of training, we can get something done. You right. nailed it. You've got, uh, I learned that, I think it was years ago, um, you've always got to give, even your athletes, you got to give people an out. Yeah. If you back them into a corner, it's it's, it's not going to go well. No. 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 I know, right? Even, yeah, e- e- it's it's that out is is a safety net. It doesn't it, it doesn't affect their ego when they they got nowhere to go. Then their ego is going to be crushed, you know. And then your relationship could be almost irreparable. Yes, especially with a head coach. I know. And on the flip side to that is if you have a head coach who who's doing one thing and you may not agree with it, but you're unwilling to change, like like Cal just said, we're the team behind the team. Right. That could be your ego. Right. And then how about this though? If he wants something done and you don't want to change, let's find a way to meet in the middle. You may come up with a new method that you really like. God forbid we compromise. Right? And then I'll be honest with you. I think I sh- the ten twenty test, I actually have a test where I have 10 timing gates laid out. And it tells me about 15 different qualities. That test was, de- that test was developed by me. But you know where it started? A coach pushing me to the limit to find a test that could tell him a bunch of information. And it was uncomfortable in that meeting. I'm like, I don't know if it can be done. And I went to the drawing board and I started building it, building it, and keep going. Where you run a 20-yard dash and then there's a change of direction. And you run another 20 and there's another change of direction. And then you run another 80 yards or on an ice rink you skate around. And there's 10 timing gates laid out, and this whole thing can tell me if you need eccentric strength, if you have a left leg change of direction, right leg change, the whole deal. And I created it, and actually I got some military um, people implementing it right now just to get a bunch of numbers on it. But you're going, if that coach said, we got to find a test, and he was hounding me, he's like, if you're good, you'll find one. <laughs> I was like, okay. Put it up with the pressure on Right? And it, yeah. but, but necessity is like the mother of invention, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you got to have to find a new way. It's like I you mean, said, forcing the organism to, yeah. to adapt. Yeah. And then you, you, it's okay that a coach is pushing you. or, but, but you're going, some of my best workouts were just made, I just feedback from the kids. Are they optimal? No. But you know what? They like them, and we're going to do them periodically. Yeah, you made me think, uh, I need to read a little bit more, but you, that they say that that's how Steve Jobs was, that he was big on pushing, like, we got to find a way. Now, he was, I think he was definitely an overlord of a of a manager or supervisor of people. I don't know if that's true or not. I've never met him or worked with him. God rest his soul. But um, 
Yeah, but just you know, like you said, like you said, the the necessity, like let's find a way to to not take no for an answer, but there's got to be a way to to figure this thing out. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that that's the definitely you got because you got to think with Apple. I mean, I mean, think about how when you start talking about uh, innovation, how Apple's changed so many people's lives, and you start talking about training in our athletes. That's the only way we're going to improve. Their, their performance is having that same kind of mindset. Yeah. Um, you know what? One one example I can give, Mike, you know the single EDT? What, what do I call that? Do you know what method? I tell my... What do you mean the single EDT? So where you do a 70, 60% bench. Oh, yeah, where you do a, yeah, which a one, one rep and a one rep? Yeah. So so I had a, a, a thrower's coach that he wanted to do base building, like GPP methods, and I, I my favorite one's a circuit. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want his throwers doing a circuit, but he still wanted to do a base. So what I did was, I'm like, all right, we just got to get the heart rate to 140 to 160. But with a thrower, he didn't want to do the circuit, which is, you know, 70 stations and probably four or 500 reps or probably actually six, 700. And he goes, okay, so find a way. Well, then I looked at Charles Staley's EDT method where you do five, six reps, and then you go right to the next exercise, and you go back and forth. Well, I said, well, what if we did this with singles with our throwers? So, Coach, we just took 60% of their squat, 60% of their bench, put on the bar. They hit a single. They get right up. They go over. They do the squat for a single. They come right back to the bench. We did that for 10 minutes. Heart rate spiked. That's 150. And they were doing singles for 10 minutes. So they also got in shape, yep. and they got stronger. I've seen some of that done before. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. And I know a lot of NFL teams will have their linemen do that for a base building. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I shouldn't say a lot, but like I know of four coaches that are implementing it, right? And you're going, it's a way to get a, a – a, and then then you pick – you give them like three, four minutes rest. So you, they just did 10 minutes at 150 beats per minute. And then you give them three minutes rest, and you do four more of those paired exercises singles and maybe if it's a lap pull down maybe you do a double but the point and with like a lap pull down with an rdl you know what i mean and then you do like a shoulder press or whatever you want to do but you do four 40 minutes of 10 set of uh 40 minutes total of that doing singles or doubles and that can get them in shape and build a huge base form and then when they, they're still strong when they come out of their base building and then they get stronger because they got a good base and that was a method I used to put together. And I really came from Charles Staley's EDT methods, right? But yeah, I just modified it. And it was a necessity that I had to have to, to, to help this coach. He he didn't want his big guys doing circuits, even though they're good for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that is a, that's a lot. I mean, plus I would think with, with a circuit, like you said, you're doing six, 700 reps, you're not getting that with with the EDT, right? No, no, you're not. So it's definitely not only it's more it's safe, safer, yeah. Yeah. and probably doesn't beat them up. No. Well, when you get those athletes like you were saying who who like to move heavy loads, and it's like a compromise, like we said, yeah. is so you get to work your aerobic base, but you're still moving some a little bit of weight mm-hmm. versus doing body weight exercises for whatever it may be. But yeah, it's uh, it was a uh, again. I didn't want to do it. It was uncomfortable. But but I came up with a pretty good thing then. You know what I'm saying? And you got to have this. You know, I, I ran across people that don't seem to create a lot, but they have this attitude, oh, well, you can't do that. You know what I mean? Like, how are you going to do that? I'm like, we got to find a way. <laughs> it's like when I, sw- I had one assistant when I said, hey, we're going to switch everything from reps to train for time. And he's like, 
it's not possible. And I'm like, what do you mean it's not possible? This is how we're going to do it. <laughs> Came back after the first workout. I was like, oh, yeah, this, this is okay. You know what I mean? I'm like, all right, there we go. Well, I, I think that's probably a platform that has helped your success is that willingness to try different things, right? I mean, it's like you said earlier about, you know, willing to accept that you could have been doing things wrong or, or suboptimally this whole time. Because um, you're constantly, it feels like, getting your hands in different things, reaching out to different resources. Um, but that's what triphasic, I feel like, has been built on, is finding these different methods that elicit this adaptation that would go well in a GPP block or a power block or whatever it may be. Right. I can never stop looking. I'm not going to. I won't. There's no way until um, I'm done. And I don't know when that'll be. Right? I mean, I, I, I've been learning from... Like one of the most beneficial coaches I've ever coached, he says he's a high school coach, but Chris Corfus out of Chicago. Like he, I called him and I was talking to him, and and uh, he says, "Is this Cal Dietz? And I was like, "Yeah, it's Cal Dietz. Like the triphasic Cal Dietz? I was like, "Yeah, it's triphasic Cal Dietz. You read it? That's great." He's like, "Yeah, we do your stuff." He's like, "I got, I got six kids that actually jump thirty six inch verticals in high school because we're doing the triphasic and some other things." And I'm like, "Okay." I'm like, "I'm gonna with that results. Like, send me a video." You know, and you never know about vertical jumps. I didn't know Chris at the time. And uh, I'm like, send me a video. And he sent me a video of a kid jumping like 37 inches with his hands on the hips. Whoa. And I was like, you got six of those? He's like, yeah, we got 30 over 30. I'm like, all right, next Saturday I'm going to drive to Chicago (laughs) and meet you and see what you're doing. And he had all this ankle and foot stuff and our speed manual, like the spring ankle. I'm like, yeah, this is for real. You show up and there's a Chicago, he says he's a high school coach and there's a Chicago bear running down the driveway and Olympic sprint medalist running down the driveway. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever you want to call yourself. <laughs> you can be a high school yeah, coach, so whatever. Deceptive. Yeah, <laughs> right? So, Coach, if you, uh, I know you're a little unfamiliar with Chris Corpus, but he'll often post videos again in his driveway. So, that's just down his cul de sac and there'll be an Olympic sprinter just sprinting with a sled down his street. Yeah. Down the street. Down, down the his street, street in yeah. Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bo. I think Bo Jackson's house was right beside him, right across the street. But yeah, it's uh, it's pretty. Yeah, he's, he's all set up in his basement too, like a little weight room. I have, yeah, I've got to meet Chris at some point because I keep hearing yeah. you guys. Talk Let's about have him in for next year's clinic. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to get him. Yeah, we'll get him. He's awesome. Yeah, you love him. Look forward to it. Yeah, yeah, Chris is a great friend of mine. Obviously, one of the owners of RPR, and uh, he is uh, he's one of those guys that just keeps testing. How's he test? He's got timing gates. They keep running faster. That's what we're going to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just comes back to he just keeps investigating. And, you know, if, you, if you're if you truly evaluating what you're doing, if it's if it's effective or not, if it's optimal or not, you have to keep investigating and, and keep finding out yeah. if, yeah. Exactly. But I had a couple, I had a question for you, a little different uh, change of gears here. Um, internship. You obviously, you, you. I just feel like, uh, just from the years I've known you and co- Coach Mike Hanson here, is yeah. he interned under you there at Minnesota? Uh, you have a very, a very uh, sought after and good uh, internship program. Um, what do you look for, Cal? If you're looking for an intern, um, and they may not work directly with you, but they're still going to come intern with you, right, and being right. under your system and your tutelage. What do you look for in interns today? Um, somebody that's really w- with an open mind, right? That's willing to understand that again, maybe everything that you've learned might not be right in your your college degree, or or, or less than optimal. But you needed to learn it. 
Um, I find, uh, and, and we don't nail it every time because then sometimes we need like four and or five, and we 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 know there's two good ones in it, and hopefully, the two good ones can create the culture amongst the interns. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, we've had groups of interns that go bad with their culture, and they just got attitudes, and you're going, well, and even though they were good coaches, you're like, hmm. Um, I see a lot now that I find that to how to be a good intern. I think adaptability, uh, I think a lot of kids lack some awareness of of just being, okay, what do I got to do to make a good impression? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think they've had a lot of things done for them in their lifetime. A lot of this kids these age, this age group. And I mean... I'm like, wow, they just don't see some of the little things. And I'm not even talking about coaching. I'm just talking about how the perception of themselves is is with me, yeah. you know. And I don't need to be called sir or coach, and I tell them to call me Cal. But some of the little things that you're going, hey, you know, I, I, the way you think is not necessarily uh, in regards to, hey, uh, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to leave early today. Okay, okay, that's fine, but you're going... Uh, just it's really nice out. That's not a reason to leave early, because yeah. <laughs> it's nice out. Right? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I think the more real life experiences kids can have, uh, I'll be honest with you, like farm kids, they seem to do a really good job. Or somebody that, that grew up in that setting, because they have to. I mean, I have farm kid like he'll be he'll be looking for stuff to do when he's had his internship. You know, we've got that with military interns. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Same. They're thing. just looking for things that they can do to help. Yes. I don't know if society is creating a tribe mentality anymore, Coach. Yeah. And I love being part of a tribe, right? Especially with my office guys, the guys I have that I got three people right now that are four of us. There's five of us total that are two interns, three interns that have been there a while, and they got other jobs, so they intern with us just to stay there, but they make enough money. And you're going, man, we got I got a group of five that are a tribe, and like we laugh, we joke, we have a good time, right? And I don't know if uh, – it seems like some of these interns come in, they don't have a purpose. The purpose is I'm here to serve these athletes, and you're here to serve them with me. And I don't think they think that serving an athlete is something of value. Or serving the the program, you know what I mean, and it's hard because um, you see them on Instagram, and and actually that's funny because I'll they'll show my my assistants will show me a post of a kid on Instagram that's our intern. I'm going, that's not him, right? Just because of the the perception and persona he's posted on social media, and I know him fifteen or ten hours a day. You're going, that's not who that kid yeah, is. Two different, yeah, two different people. There's not much reality there it seems like on the social media that perception that they give out and that that's a big disconnect i think yeah that social media can be positive it can be powerful but it can be very can be very limiting as far as you know if you're not because i think you know you, you mentioned the awareness and i would i mean i definitely would agree i think that the and you, you know, I've read enough business stuff, but the emotional intelligence yes. of not being, knowing how they're coming off to people. So they're not aware of how they're being perceived. And so they don't know how to adjust um, how they're interacting with you or with an athlete or how to even, you know, raise the bar on 
how they're doing their job. And so if you're not aware of how you're coming off, then it's hard to take feedback. So. 100%. Because you don't see it. You don't know you don't know, right? Yeah, that's the hard part. If you don't know you don't know, you're, you're at the lowest level of understanding. What are the four levels what again? Is, what is Give it? them to me, Coach. You don't know you don't know. And then the next level is you know that you don't know, <laughs> okay? And then there's a level of, of education, right? And then there's mastery or something like yeah. that. Yeah. That lowest level is, though. The danger, <laughs> right? <laughs> you just don't know you don't know. And you're like, oh, okay. But that adaptability, it just seems like, you know, I, I took a group of them up to my honey cabin, and we got a tractor really stuck. And they were standing around. There was no way any of them. We're going to be able to, so, I mean, I hooked up the chains on my truck. I got my truck set up. I said, all right, you got to get in here when I say go. And I got in the, I got in the tractor. I had a backhoe and a front. And I actually had to, to scoop and move the whole thing at the same time. And I had to coach them. And, like, they're like, how do you know how to do all this stuff? I'm like, I, I don't always. You just got to get in there and do it, people. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to try, learn through. Right? Yeah, learn through try on there. I know. And then we had a flat tire on one of the SUVs. I was like, you guys got to take that off. I didn't need it to take it off to fix it, but I'm like, see if you can take that off. It was an hour and 20 minutes on something that would have took me six. Oh, I love it. I know, see, that's right? that's what we need. We need to incorporate that into the internship program. Seriously. That should be the, what we do week one. That's curriculum. We're going to change the time. We'll add that. Um, going back to something you said with interns um, about not understanding that they're there to serve the athletes or a team, right? right. Um, that's a problem we've even seen, whether it's, interns who end up coming on to help us or even we've had it in applicants where they've reached out and literally presented what can you what do you guys offer for me what can you do for me and it's like instantly you, you know they're missing the boat I know. it's like that that's not what this is about what we can do for you is offer you an experience it, um it's it's not just the 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 intern they're starting with the internship it's the whole profession is about serving people and you walk into an internship and you want to know what we can do for you? You you stepped off in the wrong like right. you're in, you're I'm in not, the wrong field. Yeah, because if this is about you, you got coach, some bad news. The next fifty years are not gonna be great for you. Coach, yeah. uh, like how important you in your world you're a big deal. But 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 honestly, you're not as important as your athletes. You're not as important as your Never. head coaches or Never. your assistant no. coaches. You're not as important as your children. You're not as important as your wife. Coach, there's a whole list of people in my life. Like, I'm 100, in my opinion, on my That's list. Right. Like, we're low at the, we're low at the total Seriously. And we're, we're, but, but you know what? I, I saw a picture of, it was like, what was it, a leader? Or um, it was a leader versus the uh, somebody that, like, considering another term it was like somebody that was in charge and it was a picture and it was a person like in the sled standing there mm -hmm. but the leader was a true person at the front pulling the most do you know what i mean mm -hmm. and yeah somebody may be the boss but the leader was the guy pulling the sled the boss was in the sled but in my life like you're sitting here going all i mean 90 percent of my day i'm i'm serving yeah, people you're, you're helping others Mike Faber taught us uh, a good lesson when I was interning at Michigan. He's the director at the University of Michigan. But he told us a story about how he had the perfect candidate to come in to be an associate director. Um, essentially aced every portion of his interview, couldn't find a flaw in him. But as he's sitting in his office, um, ready to essentially offer him a job, the guy's literally looking out in the parking lot saying, so which parking spot would, would mine be? And, you know, thinking it was a joke. 
you know, kind of laughing it off, but finding out the guy was serious. He's like, which one's my spot? And he's like, I don't want to, like, this isn't about you. Like, it's not about what's, what can be offered to you. This is about what, what can you offer the University of Michigan? And so he said he ended up not hiring the guy. And for whatever reason, that story stuck that like, you know, no matter what you think that you can bring to the table, you can't forget that we're here to serve athletes or serve a team that's bigger than us. Yeah, a coach one time years ago told me that when he was looking at athletes, when he would recruit, the one kind of kind of uh, measuring stick he would have throughout the process was if you meet an athlete that they are more concerned about what the university can give them versus what they can give back to the university, that was a that was something you want to look at really close, a flag that they're going to come there, it's going to be about them. They're not going to try to give back and be grateful and try to, to, to make their team better. They're going to say, what can I get and take away and walk away from here? So, so. The, the question then is, as a coach, if you're going to take that kid, you better have a culture that's so strong that changes his attitude the day yeah. he walks Surrounded, around. Surrounded, yeah. Seriously. Because I've seen cultures take selfish kids and change their lives. And I've seen cultures, and, and you know, I've had coaches, and they're like, hey, what would you think of our culture this year? And I looked at him, I said, what was it? I mean, what culture did you instill, coach? And he looked at me, and I'm like, well, if you didn't instill a culture, we had a 20-year-old culture of men that were selfish. So if you don't instill one, you don't want to know the one that naturally pops up. And that's what we had, and we had a losing season. And it wasn't a bad culture. It's just a 20-year-old selfish culture. And cultures like, I had a genius coach tell me something like carbon monoxide, right? Mm-hmm. You can't see it, you can't smell it, but it would kill you. Yeah. It's, it's, I think that was you, coach. <laughs> yeah, talk, yeah, it's like culture is like oxygen, right? I right. mean, when it's present no, and it's healthy, nobody notices. But when it's toxic, yeah. everybody Everybody notices. Yeah. So and you can wake up dead. Yeah, you'll it'll, it'll kill you. So it's and that you know. So I see that you win with people, but what drives that people? And and to me, that tribe. I mean, every championship team that I worked with, I've I've won, I've won thirty six Big Ten titles, but I've coached two hundred seasons, maybe one hundred ninety at Minnesota. Now you're going. So I, I was a loser how many times? A lot, mm-hmm. you know. But I was forced to win like 36, okay? And you're going, but every team had a mentality about them. You know what I mean? And I look back, and one of the most unbelievable seasons I ever experienced was in women's ice hockey. We had an undefeated season, which has really never happened in the modern age. And I've never been so nervous for games at the end of the season just because to say that I was part of something that was perfect like that, especially in hockey, right? Yeah. There was a time where I think we were down by two goals in St. Cloud, and uh, we came out with three minutes left, put two in to tie it up, and they said the attitude on the bench wasn't, oh, no, no. <laughs> no, we're going to win it in the next minute. <laughs> Mentality, the, the, yeah. Yeah, and this was like towards the end of the season, and they went out and they put one in in regulation to win, in regulation. But that was the mentality. They were never wavered because they were a tribe. They were a group, and they knew that they were all business. It's powerful, yeah. All business, yeah. Well, Coach, we're going to have to kind of wrap it up here. Okay. That sounds good. Khaled has been 
Absolutely. Uh, just phenomenal having you in back in Austin, but have, have you on the podcast and uh, just to be able to have a conversation. Any any concluding thoughts, Mike, for, for Cal? No, we just appreciate you coming down here, talking shop. Uh, you're welcome anytime. Uh, anytime you want to reach out, uh, you are more than welcome. So. Well, I appreciate you guys having me, and I know it's uh, it's awesome to be here and share ideas and, and hear from other coaches and just sitting here knowing that uh, type of coaches like you are in this profession, and it's, it's kind of refreshing, you know, because there's not always um, – People are in it for themselves a lot, you know what I mean? And to know that, and we know this, that we're here to serve. We're here to serve these athletes, and hopefully I'm making the right decisions for them, and that's why I keep working. It's just to make those decisions. But, uh, yeah, I'm just fortunate that I can be a coach. That's awesome. Coach, if if somebody wants to follow you, I mean, I think most people know how to get you, but where can, what's the most convenient and, and easiest way to connect with you? Yeah, I have a website like Athlete. Uh, XL, like extralargeathlete.com. I have triphasictraining.com. I'm on Instagram. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of emails, but you know, if you probably find my email if you're in the free world, it seems that some days it seems like everybody's able to find it. So, um, Caldeets at Gmail is one way to get a hold of me. So, um, anyway, and I have various Facebook coaching groups so that uh, I'm involved with. So, uh, yeah, and anyway, you know, I'm sure you can do a quick Google search to find me. Yeah, you pop up pretty quick. Yeah. So, again, Coach Caldeets, uh, thank you for all you're doing for our profession and making us all better coaches and professionals. Uh, you've been a huge blessing, I know, to our staff and to me. So thank you, Coach. And I know Coach Hanson's uh, came out of your your coaching tree, and he's been he's been just a, a great coach in addition to our team here. So thank you, Coach. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he'll be better than me, and <laughs> and I appreciate the kind words. Um, My eyes are rolling. Ah, whatever. <laughs> so, um, all right. Well, thank you guys. It's it's awesome. Thanks for the kind words, and uh, uh, I appreciate it. Well, what do you say, in Minnesota? Go Gophers. Go Gophers. And me and Mike from Austin, Texas, this has been the team behind the team podcast with Coach Cal Dietz, the man, the myth, the legend. We love you, Coach. We appreciate you. Keep making an impact and hook them horns. Hook them. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the team behind the team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.